0: All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Amen. The man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Right. Romans chapter 10. I read to you the first nine verses. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God, for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. Amen and amen. This chapter was introduced for the last four verses of chapter 9, where the difference in believing the gospel was shown between the Jews and the Gentiles. For the most part, Israel did not believe the gospel, and there were a great number of Gentiles that were believing it. When Paul confronts Jewish legalism like he has to do in Romans and Galatians, and basically the entire New Testament, he reduces the gospel to its initiating act of faith in believing the record that God's given of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he's not confronting Jewish legalists, the apostle sounds like James, and he shows that works are necessary in order to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It just depends on the audience that he has, and it's our responsibility to remember that. Paul never met an Arminian. He had never met anyone crazy enough to think that an unregenerate man could believe on the Lord Jesus Christ savingly and thus get himself elected by his own choice. And that's what's called conditional election, of the Armenian scheme of salvation. he never meant anyone like that, that Jesus died for all men, the vast majority of which would suffer for their own sins in the lake of fire. We need to remember that when we come to Romans chapter 10, we've already read Romans 4. we already know about Abraham. We all, we've already read Romans 5 and that it's by the obedience of one that justifies us. We've already read Romans 8, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's the death and life of Christ that justifies us. We've already been to Romans nine, and that election is true and that not all Israel is of Israel. Those things are established, and we should be remember them at all times because we cannot, fairly or rightly, interpret Romans 10 unless we remember the chapters we've already read. I hope you'll always remember a timeline of Abraham. And if I repeat myself a few days, a few times today, about Abraham, I hope you'll forgive me. But I want you to remember that Abraham was 75 years old when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I want you to remember that it was about the age of 80, after five years at least, of great faith in following the Lord. Great faith that's written up in Hebrews chapter 11 as being great faith. That There's a simple little verse describing his belief of a promise that God gave him that the apostle used for great advantage. Abraham's faith in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, and I know I'm repeating myself from my introduction, but dare you forget it. Didn't change his status in heaven or on earth or in his soul. Right. Abraham was still the same. Abraham never read Genesis 15.6. Nothing changed. Abraham was born again long before Genesis 15.6. Abraham was justified in the decrees of God long before the world was created. And Jesus Christ wasn't going to come for another 1,500, 2,000 years to uh, pay the actual legal price for Abraham's justification. So what happened in Genesis fifteen six? Abraham believed God. God counted that faith as an evidence of his righteous character and his justifying grace in the man's life. Moses wrote it down, and Paul used it extensively in the New Testament to encourage us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might show that we're righteous and God's justifying grace is in our lives as well. Right. And Abraham didn't prove that faith for another 35, 36 years until he offered Isaac on the altar in Genesis chapter 22. And then James would say he was truly justified because now he was justified by works and confirmed his faith from Genesis 15 as being legitimate, sincere, true, and honest. And so we look at all those things and we're not moved by them. We don't have sola fide on our website. I don't have sola fide on my keychain. And we don't believe in sola fide. Martin Luther and the others that were so hung up and obsessed and idolatrous over the word sola fide, meaning faith only, because of their obsession with Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 where it says the just shall live by faith. Now when it says the just shall live by faith, I ask you how in the world do they get to be just? Right. God made them just. Amen. But how are the just supposed to live? By faith. The unjust don't become just by faith. The unjust don't get life by faith. The just live by faith. You know what James would say about faith only? Do You know what James wrote about sola fide? Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is no better than a devil's faith. Faith without works is alone and it's nothing. Thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. Amen. Martin Luther was so obsessed about Romans 1.17 because the little tiny bit of light he got out of it that he questioned the apostolic integrity and scriptural authority of the book of James, along with four or five others, and considered an epistle of straw because he couldn't reconcile it together. I hope that we can reconcile it perfectly well. The initial act of our obedience is faith, but then we're to add to our faith. And there's a number of things listed in 2 Peter chapter 1. Right. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, the Israel here has to be elect Israel. We have already had Romans nine six that tells us they are not all Israel which are of Israel. The reason I'm repeating myself is dare you forget this. I am so tired of picking up commentary after commentary, going to Romans chapter nine and verse six and finding out that they understand that there is an election of grace in the nation of Israel, but by the time they get to Romans ten one, they've forgotten all about the election of grace that is in Israel that distinguishes between national Israel and elect Israel. That's a shame. That's a terrible shame that your memory is so poor that you can't make it from nine six to ten one without forgetting what you learned in nine six. That's like trying to take on a next, the next chapter in geometry and you forgot the axioms of the previous chapters on your way to that chapter. Lord, help us. It's a shame. It's a terrible shame. When you come to Romans 10, 1, you better ask the question, what Israel is under consideration since I have just been told there's more than one and that they're very different from each other. It's a travesty to overlook all that Paul did in Romans chapter 9, proving that there is an elect Israel. And Paul's desire for Israel to be saved Once we understand that it's elect Israel because it's impossible for Paul to be desiring or praying or working for God to save those that he had purposed not to save. It's impossible that the Apostle Paul was spending his life wanting to turn vessels of dishonor into vessels of honor. That he was going to change vessels of wrath into vessels of glory. That's all impossible. It's impossible for the apostle that wrote, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, that he was going to get some to will and some to run in order to get the mercy and grace of God for eternal life. That's impossible. You say, I'll tell you this is what I say. Lord, I'm a little tiny bit fearful. You're asking us to step out into territory that is held by so few. The vast majority of Christendom stands entirely opposed to us and in our interpretation of Romans 10.1. Then the Lord comes to me with a picture of Pope Francis before my eyes. And I think about that smiling, fairy, nice fellow that's in, the news all, that's in the news right now, and I think about the one million points of doctrine that the Roman Catholics are wrong on. Those men are so confused and so mixed up. I know that you thought that a cardinal was a species of bird, the male of which was red, didn't you? Where do you find the word cardinal in the Bible? They've got this college of cardinals that sends up smoke signals pretending they're American Indians. It's the most ridiculous show on earth. They don't have a clue about the Bible. They don't have a clue about Christianity. That man, they're presenting that man to you right now in the marketing efforts that are being made to show him to be a humble man. That man isn't humble when he steps into a college of cardinals and defies the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God and puts on robes and is part of a system that stands opposed to everything the Bible teaches. Every foul bird lives in that church. And so you think about 1.2 billion, that's the current number that the media is reporting, that are following that particular Pope Francis, the first Jesuit that's a pope. And you think about all the errors they have and all the apologists that they have put to their ridiculous little seminaries and all the work that they have done to try to defend the doctrine and practice of the Roman Catholic Church. And you realize, Lord God, your word is true. The law of the Lord is pure, converting the simple. And as we, if we meditate in the Word of God, we have more understanding than our enemies, our teachers, and the ancients. They can call upon the church fathers all they want. We have the Word of God and God our Father. And I hope that you have the confidence in the Word of God that you can read Romans 9. He made it for you. It's simple enough. It's plain enough. It's all plain to him that understandeth. That there's an election of grace in Romans chapter 9 and the Apostle Paul is not going to undo it. And the Apostle Paul admits elsewhere that he gives his life so that the election of grace might also receive gospel salvation by his labors for them to know what God has done for them. Amen. And that's why he labored and that's what he wants to accomplish right here. Paul further described in the verses that follow that they needed a salvation from ignorance. So the salvation is Conversion. It is coming to a knowledge of the truth. It is to know that Jesus Christ was God's appointed lamb that was to die on the cross of Calvary and put away their sins, and so all the sacrificial system of Moses' economy is no good. Right. The priesthood is no good. Because there's a new priesthood. Do you know what it was like for a Hebrew to read Hebrews chapter 7 and find out from Psalm 110, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? How many times is that in the book of Hebrews, young man? Seven times. Seven times in one book, Psalm 110 is quoted. Why would it be that important? Because the Levitical priesthood has passed away. Why are there 70,000 Roman Catholic priests? Where in the world do they come from? There is no priest in the Word of God, or especially in the New Testament, except the Lord Jesus Christ. What in the world is wrong with that church in Rome? It's the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. It's the great whore herself, riding old pagan Rome into power. Lord, have mercy upon us and bless us with your truth. We're thankful that there's no sacramentalism in Romans 10, 1 through 9. And we're thankful that there isn't any Arminian doctrine in these verses either. That they might be saved. This is the practical phase of salvation where these elect Israelites can learn that Moses' system was only a schoolmaster to bring us to 30 A.D., and it's been set aside. The Lord allowed the two covenants to run side by side for 40 years, and then he leveled Jerusalem with a plow by Tertius Rufus, commander of a legion that leveled that city and dug up its foundations so that there was nothing left, so that the old covenant was completely gone. But the Bible says in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Lord, we're thankful for that. And all those poor Jews that didn't understand though, and that's what burdened Paul so much. He wanted them to have all the blessings that come in believing the gospel. Believing the gospel gives us the assurance of eternal life, but it doesn't bring eternal life to us. It lets us know that we have passed from death into life. It doesn't pass us from death into life. It doesn't justify us. It shows us that we are just and that God has done the justifying long before. It doesn't make us righteous, but we show that we're righteous when we believe the gospel. Verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. This tells you right here what the salvation must be. Because verse 1 ends with that they might be saved. Then verse 2, 4. I'm going, to, I'm going to explain what they need. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they don't understand how a man can stand just before God. They are relying on the law of Moses, which was never intended by design or ability to justify a man. It is a schoolmaster. It was to be a tutor in the church. You just connect the Old Testament church and the New Testament church in this way, that they, had a, that they had a form of worship that was to teach them how important it was to have a Savior. It was a schoolmaster that condemned them. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Why did the law even exist? To show man the exceeding sinfulness of sin and how much they needed a Savior. Oh, are you happy to be on this side of the cross? It is so wonderful to be on this side of the cross and to sing, There is a fountain filled with blood. They never sang that in the Old Testament church. They just made a fountain every day on the altar as the priest cut open the throats of animal after animal after animal and divided them up, and there was blood everywhere. But we have a fountain filled with blood 2,000 years ago. And by the eternal spirit, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You know the apostle Paul knew full well about being ignorant, because he had spent the first part of his life, adult life, being ignorant. He was one of these elect Israelites that didn't understand, right. and the Lord had mercy on him for his, for his, for his unbelief, but and for his zeal, He counted him faithful. Right. It tells us in 1 Timothy chapter one. The Apostle Paul was not saved in the road to Damascus except in the way of this salvation. He came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. He said so, 2 Timothy 1.9. Jesus Christ died for him on the cross. He said so, 1 Timothy 1.15. The Holy Spirit had already regenerated him. He said so, Titus 3.5. But on the road to Damascus, he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he went and sat in the house of one Ananias who told him that Jesus Christ had paid for all his sins. And as soon as he had meat and got strengthened, he went into the synagogue in Damascus where he had gone to haul men and women into prison and preached Christ and Him crucified. Because he was converted. He knew that Moses' system was now wrong. And everywhere he went, he was able to preach that. There's so much more that could be said, but we don't want to try to say it. They're being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own. That's a horrible thing. They weren't trying to do it their own way. They weren't trying to do it the Roman Catholic way. They weren't trying to do it the Arminian way. They were trying to do it Moses' way. And Moses' way was God's way externally until Christ came. But even under the Old Covenant, though that was the way they worshipped externally, and there were slight obscure promises here and there of a mediator that was going to come, it was never designed to justify anyone. It was just to show their sinfulness. Why did the high priest have to go in on the Day of Atonement in year 2 if in year 1 he took blood in there and sprinkled it on the mercy seat before God and their sins were put away? Why did he have to go in in year 2? Because their sins weren't put away. Hebrews 10.1 tells us in that covenant there was continually a remembrance made of sin. Oh, what do we have the Lord's Supper for? To continually remember that sin has been put away by the Lord Jesus Christ. What a difference in the blood of Christ! Versus the blood of bulls and goats. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. What a glorious thing to be ignorant of. We wouldn't want to be ignorant of such a glorious thing. What a terrible ignorance to miss such a glorious thing. We want to see that righteousness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The law was never the means of righteousness. So it didn't have to come to an end as the means of righteousness. This is turning upon the conscience of elect Israelites that once they believe the gospel that Paul preached, then they would know that there is an end to the law for righteousness. It's Christ has fulfilled it for us. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. No one was ever justified by the law. No one was ever made righteous by the law, so it didn't come to an end that way. It came to an end in the sense of someone foolishly trusting it to make them righteous when they believed on Christ. And until they believed on Christ, they wouldn't know that there was an end to the law and a better, and a hope. better is not even a good word, is it? But that's the word that Hebrews uses, it's better. It's a better covenant built on better promises, and so it's better. It's so much better, I don't even like using the word, but if it's good enough for the Holy Spirit, it's good enough for me. It's better. And so for these elect Israelites that have been chosen to salvation, but they didn't hear, hadn't heard, hadn't believed, the gospel that Paul preached yet about Christ being the sufficiency of our justification and righteousness, as soon as they heard it and as soon as they believed it, Christ put an end to all that law stuff they were doing. That's what verse 4 means. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. But if you didn't believe it and you were an elected Jew, you would just keep right on offering those sacrifices and trying to keep the terms of Moses' law, which you would never be able to keep sufficiently for justification. Now this is nothing new in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8. They've all taught how a man is justified freely by the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. So this isn't new. Paul is just reorganizing his thoughts and restating them with a new topic at hand, and that is, why don't the Jews believe the gospel? Why are so few of them believing? So he's explaining that that he has a great desire for them to believe and that the elect may believe and that he's going to by all means do what he can to save some of them. 11.14 says that. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. See, this is a salvation that was dependent upon Paul being all means to them. If he could get them jealous enough of Gentiles, he just might get them saved. Now, does that mean we go to heaven and get our names in the book of life by getting jealous of someone else going to heaven and getting their name in the book of life? I don't think so. (laughs) Eternal life is not in that verse, but gospel conversion. The apostle was hoping that when the Jews in these scattered cities, remember, he wasn't preaching in Jerusalem and Judea. He was preaching on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. He was hoping that the Jews would see these growing congregations of Gentile saints rejoicing in Jehovah God and rejoicing in His Son Jesus Christ and would be provoked because these Gentile proselytes would have left synagogue worship to go join this church of Paul's. And he wanted to provoke them to emulation so that the Jews would convert. The ones that could convert. That If by any means I might save some of them. See, gospel salvation is dependent upon faithful ministers and faithful hearers and God's mercy and God's blessing. Amen. I did that last Sunday and I'm not going to do it again. It's First Timothy 4.16. Enough said there. Verse 5. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. Keep verse 4 in mind as we go to verse 5. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now here's what Moses said about that law for righteousness. Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. You gotta do it all in order to have eternal life. You've gotta keep every commandment. And someone has listed them at 718 commandments. This is from Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5, where it says, What if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. All those commandments, you read the book of Exodus, you read the book of Leviticus, you read Numbers, you read Deuteronomy, all you gotta do is keep every single one of them faithfully without a single problem, even one of ignorance, you know, or presumption. You can't have a sin and you can live by them. Oh, that's terrible. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Hold your finger constantly at Romans chapter 10, but look at Galatians chapter 3 just so that I can point a couple things out about the law of Moses. How hopeless it was. Justification under Moses' law was do and live. Depending on the sinner's ability for perfection. Moses' law was hopeless. No man could keep its terms, and God intended it to be hopeless. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth Continueth, that means you're always doing them. Continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Everything the Old Testament had written down, if you didn't continue doing them all, then you're under the curse of the law. That is a hopeless religion. So that's Galatians 3.10. Look at verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? When we start to understand the law that way, is it against the promises of God? No, it was never it was never intended to bring us the promises of God. God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. That's right. If if God could have given us a set of laws by which us keeping them, we could gain eternal life by obedience to him, that's the way eternal life should be. We should earn it. I appreciate the prayer that was made this morning in a six-letter word that was let loose by our young brother Adam that God and his means of justifying us has been unfair. Right. I hope that reaches a few more ears beyond this congregation. What, what would the young man mean when he says that the way that God has justified us is unfair? It's grace. Right. Grace is unfair because fair means we would be condemned. God forbid if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that secured our justification and our righteousness, not the law. The scripture, and it just, it goes on to say before faith came, and that is the object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, they always had faith. But there wasn't faith in Christ until Christ came, because Christ wasn't known fully until He came. Before faith came, I've preached this all to you before. It's called Galatians chapter 3. We were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed, gospel faith. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, once the Lord Jesus Christ was here in gospel faith, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. We don't get to become the children of God by being circumcised. We don't get to become the children of God by the law of Moses, but by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ who has made us accepted in the beloved and brought about the adoption of sons as Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 describes. And he sends the Spirit of God into our hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father, because we are sons. Right. Not in order for us to be sons. As Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 6 and Romans chapter 8, 15 through 17 would tell us. Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law in Romans 10, 5, to the man which doeth those things shall live by them. James 2, 10 would say, if you fail in one point of the law, you're under the condemnation of the whole. You're guilty of all. You know, that doesn't mean if you commit this sin, you're guilty of that sin. It means if you commit this sin, you're guilty of the combination that would come upon a man for the entire law. Because it doesn't matter if you break one point, you're guilty of all, as we've already read. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written. That is one horrible religion. No wonder the apostles would call it beggarly, carnal, worldly, weak. Are you glad there was a time of reformation? I don't mean the 16th century. I mean the time of Reformation in, from 30 to 70 AD when John, Jesus, and the apostles reformed religion. Let's come to verse 6. Now remember, in verse 5, Moses has described the righteousness which is of the law and the quotation is from Leviticus 18. And it shows how hopeless the law is. But now remember, we are turning on verse 4. We are turning on verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Verse 5 told us how painfully difficult and how utterly impossible it was to be justified by the law of Moses. Now the apostle is going to go back and pull some words out of Moses and he's going to explain to us the gospel of grace and the righteousness which is by faith. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise... It's different than verse 5. Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 30 while you hold your hand at Romans 10 and let's find the quotation by Paul of our brother Moses. But the righteousness which is of faith, there is a distinction being drawn here of trying to be justified by the law of Moses in verse 5 and being justified by Christ alone in verses 6 and 7. And how do we show that we are justified by Christ alone? See, that was all taught in 3, 4, and 5, 8, and 9, that Jesus Christ did it by the obedience of one. That's all been taught. You're supposed to know that. He's just dealing with these elect Israelites that they could quit trying to keep the law of Moses in order to be justified if they could hear and if they would believe the gospel that Christ finished it for them. And so the apostle is going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now we are in the last minutes of Moses' life. And the book of Deuteronomy is written at the very end of Moses' life. And Deuteronomy chapter 30 is at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And he has laid before Israel blessings and curses. And here's how he summarizes it. Verse 11 of Deuteronomy 30. For this commandment, which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven, that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven, and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea, that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us, and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. There's the verses. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Do you understand what these verses are saying? Let's first of all understand them in Moses' sense of the words and Israel's sense of the words. I have just spent the book of Deuteronomy explaining to you the blessings and cursings of the Lord God of heaven. I have given you the commandment. The singular commandment here is simply a collective noun for all the commandments given, that they should love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if they're in a foreign land, which is the first half of this chapter... And they repent of their sins and they should love the Lord their God and circumcise their hearts. And God will circumcise their hearts and he'll return them to their land. And he'll reward them and he'll punish their enemies. But the whole book is about obey and I'll bless. Disobey and I'll curse. And his point is, I'm at the end of my life. I have made it plain and simple for you as to what is necessary. I should repeat that about ten times. It is right in front of your face. I have repeated myself until I've been redundant. You know exactly what you should do. You don't need to have someone go up to heaven because I have already been up Mount Sinai for you and brought it down to you in graphic detail and have repeated it over and over again. You don't need someone to go get it for you to hear it and to do it because I have preached it plainly to you and you have heard it and you better do it. You don't need to send someone across the sea to the Greeks and bring back something from them because God has given it to you through me. You know exactly what He wants. It is not far away. You're all talking about it. You're all thinking about it. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. When you sit, you talk about the great blessings that have been promised for your obedience in keeping Moses' law. It's in your heart and in your mouth. Verse 14, that thou mayest do it. There's no confusion. There's no difficulty. It's obvious. It's been made plain and simple. That is what these four verses mean. They're so simple. Nobody needs to go to heaven to bring down what we need to hear and what we need to do in order to get God's blessings because Moses had already done it very plainly. No one needs to go across the sea and find any learned men anywhere else to bring what they need to hear and what they need to do in order to please God. Moses had already done it. Moses is not making a prophecy except very obscurely, if at all. The Apostle Paul does not quote him word for word. The Apostle Paul uses his words for a purpose that he now wants to make because it is just as simple under grace and under the gospel for this difference. Under the gospel, it's all what Jesus did. Under the law, it was all what they had to do. And so, so Paul is pulling these verses forward and he's going to explain how I'm using them is that justification and righteousness before God is incredibly simple. But it's all based on what Christ did, not what Moses did and not what they needed to do. Let's come back to Romans 10. Romans 10. but the righteousness which is of faith. That is righteousness declared by our faith. Righteousness proven by our faith. Righteousness evidenced by our faith is what's being described here. The righteousness which is of faith. It's how God said Abraham was righteous because he believed the promise of God. And God counted it to him for righteousness. God didn't make him righteous. God just counted and said, that man showing that kind of faith shows that he's a righteous man. Him being a righteous man shows that he's already righteous in heaven. He's already born again and all that and so forth and so on. But we've already been over those those things before we get to Romans 10. Right now he's just trying to explain about what needs to be done for these elect Israelites because they're still keeping the law of Moses in order to stand before God. And Jesus Christ is the end of that way of religion if they can hear about him and if they'll believe it. But what... Verse 6, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart. And he's he's corrupting Moses a little bit just to use it. That's a very popular passage back there, and very powerful passage, that the, the, the covenant of law works that Israel had was very obvious and very plain and right before them, and they fully understood it. They didn't need any more explanation. Moses had reached the end of his sermon, and he said, It's all been plain. Now it's time for me to die. He went up into Mount Nebo and looked over the Jordan River and saw the land of Canaan and God buried him. And his spirit went to be with his people. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart. There's no questions. We shouldn't have questions to ask like this. Who shall ascend into heaven? Who needs to go to heaven to earn salvation for us? Who needs to go to heaven to secure salvation for us? It is less who's going to go to heaven. It is more is i meaning who's going to be saved. It is more, much more, who's going to go to heaven and bring down the way of salvation for us? Just like it was under Moses. I'm going to keep Moses in tension by the words as far as I can, but see, the apostle's going to set me straight in what's in parentheses right next. Because if you have any doubt about how righteousness is obtained, if you think who is going to go to heaven and bring it to us, What minister is going to come down and show it to us? Who is going to get us righteous before God? Who is going to justify us? If you ask any questions like that, then you're bringing Christ down from above where He is already seated because He finished getting us the righteousness of God. Don't ask this question. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? How am I going to be made righteous? That is... By asking that question the way that Paul means it here, that is, to bring Christ down from above. If you ask, how can a man be made righteous? Who's going to come down from heaven? Who can establish me in righteousness before God? Who shall ascend into heaven and do this? See, it's not who goes to heaven. It's who, who's going to ascend into heaven and accomplish this for us. Because it says, that is to bring Christ down from above. The whole point here is turning on the way you're asking the question is you're putting justification and righteousness in doubt, and it is not in doubt since the Lord Jesus Christ said it is finished. And when he said it is finished, he spent a few days here on earth to prove that he was alive after his resurrection. Then he went to heaven and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews one three would tell us, having purged us, By himself, he sat down. And so see, that is to bring Christ down from above. If you are questioning how can a man be made righteous, it's already been done. How is a man made righteous under the law of Moses, verse 5? By doing every commandment continually. How is a man made righteous under the the gospel of, or or righteousness which is by faith, or the gospel of grace? They both mean the same thing. It's just that Paul is using the word faith here repeatedly for his purpose against the Jews and against Israel's Israelites who were trusting in Moses' law. What's the difference? One was you have to continually do everything, the other one is it's already done. No one needs to go anywhere and do anything because Christ already descended and ascended for us. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 10. There is nothing else to be done. And if you ask any question of who's got to do this or who needs to do that, if there's any willing, if there's any running, if there's any doubt, if there's any question of who's going to be saved, how are they going to be saved, how will they hear the message? You are missing the point. Your question is out of line because you're going to bring Christ down from heaven who finished us being justified and made righteous to be able to stand before God. And if we ask any question like that, then we bring Christ down and undo his finished work. Romans 5 has already told us it is by the obedience of one that many are made righteous. There's no other obedience to add to it. So don't ask who is going to go to heaven in any sense of Moses' old words. That is, who is going to go get this covenant and make it happen for us? Jesus Christ went and got that covenant, even Moses' covenant, and fulfilled it perfectly and then died under the curse of that covenant. And that's what makes us righteous. Say not in thine heart. Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, who is going to go make peace with God? Who is going to go bring us the righteousness which is of faith? No one needs to do that. Jesus Christ did it all. And if we ask that question in the way that Paul is condemning, then we bring Christ down from above. You know, Rome does it with sacraments. The Arminians do it with your faith being necessary. The Armenians do it with a soul winner being necessary. They bring Christ down off his throne because his work isn't finished. But his work is finished. Verse. The second question is in verse 7. Or, here's another question, and it's from Deuteronomy 30. Who shall descend into the deep? There it was. Who shall cross over the deep? Here it's who shall descend into the deep. Very similar in language, but it allows us the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, because look what it says, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. Who is going to cross the sea? Who's going to go down to the sea? Who's going to die? Who's going to be the substitute? Who's going to save us? Who's going to bring the word of that salvation? Do you know who brought the gospel of grace? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle, I mean, our brother John the Baptist brought one message. The baptism of repentance in preparation for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brought the gospel of believing on him. He not only earned it, he brought it and commenced its preaching and then ordained other men to preach it. See, Moses was the one that went up on Sinai and brought down the law. And he said, we don't need any, we don't have to ask who's going to go to heaven and tell us how to get God's blessings. We don't need someone to cross the sea to get God's blessings. I've done it for you. Under the righteousness which is of faith, Jesus Christ did it all for us. He descended, He ascended, He accomplished everything, He finished the work, He sat down, we were made acceptable, God was satisfied, it was finished. Who shall ascend to the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. The righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise it first of all has a negative, two negative aspects. Don't ask questions like, who is going to do this for us because it's all done? The law of Moses was, Moses had made it plain to them, but now they had to keep its every term. Moses was do and live. Ours is live and do. Ours is based on Christ's performance, right. not our performance. And we just show that his performance was on our behalf by the faith we have because it shows that we are righteous. You say, so Paul is using Moses' words a little differently, and I say just a little differently, than Moses intended them, and I say yes. And I'm going to jump ahead just to give you an example that this is the case, and it does happen here in Romans 10. If you look at verse 18 of Romans 10, and the Lord chose what psalm we would have today for two reasons. Here's one of them. Romans 10.18, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the end of the world. Yeah. What passage of Scripture does that come from? Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, what is it talking about? Creation. In Romans 10.18, what is it talking about? The preaching of the Gospel. You say, can Paul use Scripture like that? Yes. Very good. He's showing a fuller sense on those words. We wouldn't get them from reading Psalm 19, but we can get them from Romans 10:18, And we still wouldn't put our stock in Psalm 19. We would put our stock in Romans 10:18, right. Because that's where Paul is telling us something. And that's what he's telling us here. Moses, before he died, told Israel, I have set life and blessing before you and, and death and cursing. It's not far from every one of you. It's right in front of your face. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. You're thinking about it. You're talking about it. It's right before you. You don't need anybody to go to heaven and bring it down for you to hear something and do it because I've already explained it to you. You don't need someone to cross the sea. And when it comes to our gospel of grace, we don't need anyone to go to heaven and make peace with God, nor do we need anyone to come down from heaven and tell us how it's going to be accomplished. Jesus accomplished it and Jesus commenced its preaching. But what saith it? If it doesn't say those two negative things, if the righteousness which is of faith denies that there is anything else to be done, and it does, it denies that there is anything else to be done because Jesus Christ did it all, then what does it say positively? But what saith it? And so now after two negative things in verses 6 and 7, there is a positive thing in verse 8. What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Those words are taken from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 14. They were talking about it and they knew it. And the gospel is not something hid. It is not something obscure. It's been made very simple. And those elect Israelites simply had to merely believe a simple message that had been communicated far and wide. He's going to say it had gone into all the earth and their words unto the end of the world. It was being talked about. Now notice in verse 9 that he continues the second person, that if thou shalt confess. He doesn't say that if they shall confess. He's talking about the Romans. See, the Romans understood all of this. But the Apostle Paul is applying it to elect Israelites that weren't believing it yet. See, they understood this from chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul had said he wanted to come and preach at Rome that he might be comforted together with the mutual faith both of them and him. He said so as much as in me is I'm ready to preach the gospel to you there are Rome also. They were already men of faith. They already had it in their hearts. They already had it in their mouth. This was not something obscure. This was something very simple. But what saith it? What says the righteousness which is of faith? What is the message of the gospel of grace? The word is nigh thee. You Romans know what it is. Just like the Jews knew what the covenant of works was. It's even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. We start with the intent of these words as they were intended and understood by Israel from Deuteronomy 30.14. And we continue that by seeing the second person used in verse 9 because Paul is applying it to the Romans themselves. That if thou shalt confess... With thy mouth, the Lord Jesus. Not if they shall confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul knows the third person. Do you know what Romans ten one is, brother? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they—that's third person—might be saved. For I bear them—that's third person—record. But here he's explaining that the gospel is simple. It's been brought down. It's obvious. They're talking about it. This is the this is the intent of these words. That I, would, I will stand by as being the primary intent. The fact, the fact that there is vital salvation that puts God's words into our heart and into our mind is true. But I don't believe that's the Holy Spirit's intent here because vital salvation is not the intent of this passage. Right. It's not, will they believe if they hear? It's how can they believe if they don't hear? They need to hear it. But what saith it? If the righteousness which is of faith says, don't ask any questions about anything else that needs to be done. If you ask anything in an upward direction of who needs to come, go to heaven and come back for us, then you're taking Christ off his throne and he's sitting there with finished work. If you say who's going to cross the deep, go into the deep, die for us, or do anything else like that, that's an inappropriate question because Jesus Christ has already done that. And if you ask any question like that of anything else that needs to be done, then you bring up Christ again from the dead and leave him undead. And he won't have died for us. You'll have undone his death and his resurrection for us. You'll bring him up again from the dead. He won't have truly died for us. But what sayeth it? What is the message? It's nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. You Romans know it well. It's been preached throughout the whole world, as he's going to say in just ten verses. And here it is. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It is that simple. And it was made that obvious. And the Lord Jesus Christ not only secured it, but the Lord Jesus Christ ordained and began the preaching of it. He is the all in all when it comes to the righteousness which is of faith. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart. You know, we can notice right off the bat that the apostle puts them in the wrong order because your mouth speaks out of the abundance of your heart. But that doesn't matter. You know, the heart can't be seen by men, but the confession of the mouth can be seen. The heart deceives many men. But how many men will make a confession when their lives are at stake? When people believe in the New Testament era on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are putting your life at stake. So confession is put first, and it's a pretty important first. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. You know, here we ought to ask those that believe in uh, free grace, is what the Arminians call the fact that you're saved when you have a sinner's prayer that doesn't use the word Lord. They call it free grace. There's no grace and it's not free because they have to invite Jesus into their heart in order to be saved. But this is what they call it, free grace. But notice here, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Savior Jesus, Jesus the Savior, or the Lord Jesus. Right. Just... Some of you have never even heard of that controversy, and I wish you knew how much it rages among those poor people who want to water the sinner's prayer down as far as they possibly can to get as many saved as they can that don't have to make any kind of commitment at all, not even a four-letter verbal word, Lord, in their sinner's prayer. Faith in the heart and confession of the mouth were what the apostles required and taught everywhere. This was the gospel. The first evidence of salvation is to believe on the lord jesus christ the lord jesus christ risen from the dead assigned his 11 apostles to go and preach the gospel to every creature he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved belief baptism shall be saved what salvation's under consideration first of all the salvation that we've already been told here in the context Ten one, a salvation from ignorance to a salvation of knowledge so that they would no longer be trusting the works of Moses' law for their justification and righteousness. So first of all, it's a salvation of conversion to the truth that they will not be led astray nor falsely trusting in Moses' system for their justification. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's already been taught through the whole epistle. Please remember all that's already been said. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, look at Romans 4 again. i got to read to you the last three verses. This has already been taught, so see this is no surprise, and we should never jump into a chapter and think that we can understand it and have it be obvious to us unless we keep everything in mind we've read before. Romans 4.23, speaking of Genesis 15.6 and Abraham believing God and it being imputed to him for righteousness... Abraham being declared a righteous man by the faith that he showed in Genesis fifteen six, it says in Romans four twenty three. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. See, Jesus our Lord, the Lord Jesus, and if you believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved who was delivered for our offenses. He is the one that descended. He went down into the deep. He ascended up into heaven and he sat down at God's right hand and was raised again for our justification. That is how our sins are paid for by the death of Christ. That is how we are justified by the resurrection of Christ. How do we know that applies to us? By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. By believing Jesus, our Lord was raised from the dead by God. God counts that as an evidence of us being righteous men, women, boys, and girls. That was taught back in chapter 4. And the Romans full well knew it, and Paul appeals to it here, that that's been preached everywhere by the apostles, and everyone understands it. But he wants to keep preaching, and if by any means I can provoke these Jews that are my kinsmen of my nation to emulation, that they'll believe it. Because he's going to point out that it's been preached But they can't hear without a preacher. But hasn't the word gone everywhere? Didn't God ordain enough preachers to get the gospel to where he wanted it to go? And yes, he had. And he's going to explain over these three chapters why some of Israel didn't believe. Which is another subject for another chapter. But it's chapter 11. We're going to get to that. That some of God's elect have been blinded so that you can have the benefits of the gospel. And that you could have the benefit of the church by being taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. You know, when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? His answer was the answer we should always have. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Exactly what balance that the jailer had in his mind between I want to be saved from all the false doctrines and lies of Roman religion and i want to be able to stand before jehovah god the creator of heaven and earth and be righteous in the day of judgment to whatever balance we don't know doesn't really matter because i can tell you this what the apostle paul meant by the words he didn't mean that you get elected that way nor justified that way nor regenerated that way but there are two phases of salvation that come after believing and that is to be converted from errors and lies to the truth and that is to have the evidence that when you stand before God, you will be judged righteous. And that's what it means right here. But the first emphasis we're going to put on conversion because that's what's being run from verse 1. brother. my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Jesus Christ has done it all. It's very unlike Moses' religion where they had to do it all. And it's so simple. You Romans know it fully well. It's in your heart it's in your mind. We've discussed it all the way through the 8 chapter, the 9 chapters leading us up to chapter 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, which was identified in 4:23 and 24 which I just read to you, which was identified in Romans one sixteen. for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It's been taught, been taught and taught and taught. And so it's obvious, just like In Deuteronomy 30, it had been taught, been taught, been taught. And so there was nothing else to wonder, what else do we need to hear? And what else do we need to do? Moses had given it all to them, and Christ has given it all to us. Where preachers have gone. But how shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, which is not for today, but for next Sunday? Because that preaching has to be done. And the apostle says, but didn't Jesus Christ do a good enough job? By the preachers that he ordained? Yes. In verse 18, which I've already taken a little jump ahead and shown you, Amen. it was preached everywhere. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. This verse is this simple. When we read Genesis 15, 6, in the life of Abraham and God said, come outside. And Abraham went outside. and Look at the sky and tell the number of stars. Tell the stars. Count them. The Bible word for count. So shall thy seed be. Abraham believed the Lord. It was counted to him for righteousness. He wasn't made righteous. He had been made righteous in the decrees of God by God's everlasting love for him. Christ was going to die on the cross for him 2,000 years later. He wasn't regenerated. It was just an event in his life pulled up by the Holy Spirit and noted so that the Apostle Paul could use it against the Jewish legalists, he Abraham never got the benefit of reading Genesis fifteen six about himself. That would have been sweet, but he never had that. And it was for us. I showed you that already from Romans four twenty two to 25, there at the end of the chapter, that it's for us to know that if we believe on Jesus the Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that is the same thing as going outside and believing God's promise. But see, it's not a promise of our seed being as multitudinous as the stars of the heaven. It's the promise of eternal life. God has already promised us eternal life and God counts us righteous and recipients of that promise when we go when we believe on the record that He's given of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, do you know what it takes to get somebody to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus? Do you think anybody can do that? Do you think anybody like Abraham can walk outside and believe God in a way that God accepted? Look at 1 Corinthians 12.3. 1 Corinthians 12. Twelve, three, holding your hand always at Romans 10. Romans 10.9 teaches us that by the act of faith of believing the record God has given of Jesus Christ, we evidence our righteousness just like Abraham evidenced his by believing God. Paul, in this epistle and elsewhere, declared Abraham to be the best example of justification in the Bible. It was Abraham's little act of faith It showed he was righteous. Now, of course, Abraham backed that up by living by faith for the next 95 years. And he backed it up by putting Isaac on an altar and preparing to kill him. And we want to back up our faith with works as well. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this, Wherefore I give you to understand, this is something we ought to understand, no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. It is impossible for you to say that Jesus is Lord and to believe what Romans 4 expects you to believe and what Romans 10 expects you to believe without the Holy Ghost already being present in you. That is what brings about saying Jesus is Lord and speaking about Him as Lord. And this was part of the criteria in 1 Corinthians 12 to judge spiritual gifts, to know which ones were from heaven and which ones were not, as to what they would say about the Lord Jesus Christ. Confessing with your mouth had better result in a changed life. Because the Lord knows the difference between confession with your mouth that is not sincere and confession that is. Look at John 2. And remember with me as you turn to John 2, remember that there is another spirit that bears witness of another Jesus according to another gospel in Second Corinthians 11. There are lots of people that believe in a Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible and it's not the confession of their mouth and the belief in their heart that is the evidence of a righteous soul. Right. Look at look at John. I want to show you a couple examples of these. John two twenty three. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the Feast Day, many believed in his name. Many believed in his name. Many believed in his name. What was his name? Christ, the Messiah. When they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any man should testify of man for he knew what was in man. He didn't. He knew that they were insincere believers. They were just looking at the miracles. They weren't looking for someone to humble themselves to and obey in all that he taught in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. They were just looking at a miracle worker. Look at chapter 6. I've preached chapter 6 to you before. It's a wonderful passage about those who, so, who believe on Jesus in a way that is not evidence of righteousness at all. Verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, notice it's the same impetus. And, and what is it? It's the feeding of thousands. This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. They had their idea of what their Messiah should look like and they were going to get him to be king right now so he could deliver them from Rome. But that isn't, that isn't believing on the Lord Jesus Christ because you need to eat of him, eat of his flesh and drink of his blood as he is going to go on and say in here and believe on him as a savior, not as a king. As a savior first. And this kingship here was not the lordship of their lives that they were willing to give him. It was just their political concern and a free lunch that they had. And he said, it's not that bread that I just made from that boy's lunch. I am the bread of heaven and you have to eat of me in order to have eternal life. And he goes on and explains that everyone that the father gave him would come to him and would believe on him. And he would raise them up at the last day. Verses that we appeal to often in verses 37 through 39. And in 44 he says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And he pokes these Jews a little bit further and they wouldn't believe. And they didn't believe. We come over and more could be said. Look at chapter 7 and verse 31. John seven thirty-one, And many of the people believed on him and said... And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Now, is that believing on him when you're asking at the same time you're believing, I can't wait till Christ gets here because he's going to have more miracles than this man, won't he? John chapter 8 and verse 31. Verse 30. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Notice, verse 30 has many believing on him. And Jesus immediately confronts them by saying, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. your true disciples. Right now you're just making a profession of being my followers. He poked them just a few verses, and they wanted to kill him. And he said, Ye are of your father the devil. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of God. John eight forty seven. So back to Romans 10 and verse 9. We have to understand when we read about the confession of Jesus Christ with our mouth that we better believe in our hearts sincerely and keep up that believing and stay in his word. Abraham continued. Now Abraham had his weak moments. And it's wonderful to read the life of Abraham because it comforts us because we've all had our weak moments. Abraham had a weak moment the very next verse. Genesis fifteen six. Go read Genesis fifteen seven and 8. But that's for later. Abraham, why did Abraham ever marry Hagar and have Ishmael? Because he had a weak moment. When Ishmael was growing up, why did he tell the Lord that he didn't really want it to be Isaac, he wanted it to be Ishmael? Because he had fallen in love playing basketball with Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael might stand before thee. That's, that's kind of weak faith. But you know what? When he was 100 years old and God said, ah, Next year, about this time, you're going to have a little boy and Sarah's going to be nursing it, you know, he laughed at first, another weak moment. Isn't that comforting? Another weak moment. Another weak moment. Isn't it comforting that it says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God that what he had promised, he was able also to perform? Amen. In the New Testament, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it looks back at Abraham, what does it pick up? Weakness in faith or strength in faith? Does it say in Romans 4, and being not weak in faith? How's that possible? When he was so weak in faith at times. Because overall he was strong in faith and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ it cleanseth us from all evil and all that weakness and sanctifies everything we do. Romans 10.9 tells us that if we shall confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. How will we be saved? We'll be saved from false confidence in the law. Which is what Paul's whole point is here. We'll we'll be saved to the assurance of everlasting life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. So when we stand before God in the great day of judgment, we know we're going to be judged righteous because we believe the record that God has given of His Son. We don't do this to get born again. We don't do this to get elected. We don't do this to get justified. We do this to be saved from false confidence in our works of establishing our own righteousness. We do this in order to rest under His light yoke and easy burden. We do this to enjoy His rest of Hebrews chapter 4. That's why we believe. Look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Lots of people make a confession with their mouth about the Lord Jesus. And it goes nowhere and it means nothing. This is true confession and it's assumed in this passage. The Apostle Paul isn't going to run off now for two chapters about doing good works because that would defeat his purpose of explaining to the Israelites that there's no more work to be done. Anywhere else he will. He'll say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But he's not going to put that right here. That would be counter to what he needs to accomplish with elect Israelites. It's in other places. And we find it there. And together we compare Scripture with Scripture, put it all together, and we arrive at the fact that we first believe, then we add to our faith, virtue, and so forth and so on. And if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Or in other words, if ye do all these things, thou shalt be saved. Not in order to earn salvation, but in order to show salvation. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why call ye me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? See, if we say, Lord, if we make a confession of Lord, if we say, I believe that God raised Jesus the Lord from the dead, I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus my Lord, we can say all that. Why call ye me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And he goes on to describe about a man building his house on a rock or a man building his house on sand, and when the storm comes, and this storm, according to Matthew chapter seven, is the storm of the great day of judgment, that man's going to fall. Though he was using the name Lord. Look at thirteen, Luke thirteen. This is for all these Arminians that want to get some sinner to pray a sinner's prayer and think that they're saved by uttering a few words. Luke thirteen. Verse 23, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Do you understand the importance of us living a converted, sanctified, holy, and righteous life to give the evidence that we are in the number of those calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and in truth? And so today we have to ask, Am I like Abraham, believing the record God's given him his son Jesus Christ, we have to ask, am I going to be like Abraham and put my Isaac on an altar and be willing to slay him? Whatever those things are in our lives that are our temptations away from the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever secret sins they are, whatever things we need to give up for the gospel's sake, the apostle Paul said he counted all things but loss for the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord. Did he look like Abraham? Indeed he did. We want to look like Paul because Paul said, be followers of me and of them that walk like me. So that you have us for an example. Look at John five twenty four. I need to close because of time, but look at John five twenty four, and let me explain to you. When I look at verse nine, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I see nothing more there than Genesis fifteen six, where God told Abraham to come out and look at the stars. And God said, so shall thy seed be. Abraham believed him. God counted it to him for righteousness. He didn't become righteous. He didn't get regenerated. It was an evidence that he was already a righteous man. When we believe the record that God's given of his son Jesus Christ, it is the evidence that we're already a righteous man. And when we do that, it saves us from any human, man-made scheme of justification and righteousness which these elect Israelites needed to be saved from. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Anyone that would believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead has the complete satisfaction of all of Moses' law and knows he's going to be saved, knows he's righteous, knows he's justified. It ends trusting Moses for justification. All turning on verse 4, because that's what Paul wanted to communicate to these elect Israelites so that they could be saved from their ignorance to know that the law is done. That isn't the way of righteousness. Jesus Christ is the way of righteousness. Nothing else needs to be done. No one needs to go to heaven. No one needs to go into the the deep. If you even think along those terms, then you've taken Christ down off His throne and you've undone His death for us. You know exactly what's required. You know exactly what we do to make ourselves like Abraham because I already explained it to you in chapter 4. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that God has raised Him from the dead and thou shalt be saved. You'll be saved from false confidence in Moses and you'll be saved with the assurance that you'll stand before God justified and righteous. John chapter 5 and verse 24. This is not the best way to end but it's the way I'm going to end. And May the Lord bless the less than the best ending. John five twenty-four. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is what Jesus Christ taught. Not only did he secure our salvation, but he commenced its preaching. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, there's one tense, and shall not come into condemnation, there is another tense, and is passed from death unto life, there is a third tense in one verse. When a person hears and believes the gospel, like Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That person is in possession of eternal life. Because it says, half everlasting life. That means to be in possession of eternal life. What does it mean to have something? To be in possession of it. You have it. So when a person in the present tense hears and believes, he that heareth and believeth, that's present tense, hath everlasting life. He is in possession of everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. In the future day of judgment, he will not be condemned with sinners because he has heard and believed the record that God gave of his Son, which is the evidence that he's a justified and righteous man. He shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life, which is the perfect tense, the, the present perfect tense of the verb to pass, meaning that he was already passed before the present, which we understand being regenerated. He was passed from death until he was regenerated, put in possession of eternal life. He heard and believed, and he shall not come into condemnation. So when we look at Romans ten nine, it says, "Thou shalt be saved." That is, you're going to come into the assurance that you have eternal life, because he that hears and believes hath everlasting life, and in the great day of judgment, you will not be condemned, because you are a justified man, and it's all evidenced by hearing and believing. The apostle wanted his brethren, his elect brethren, to hear that message, and not only to hear it, but to believe it he was not only going to preach it to them along with the rest of the apostles but he was going to try to stir them up to envy and jealousy about the gentile congregations that were being formed in the hope that some of them might be saved to this assurance of their righteousness and everlasting life we don't look at romans 10:9 and see there that that's how we get born again we're born again before we get to hebrews 10 i mean romans 10:9 or no one would ever believe no one ever confess you got to have the Holy Spirit in order to confess. Many say, Lord, Lord, but they don't do after His works, and He's going to mock them. When He shuts the door, and there's no entrance into heaven, they're going to be saying, we belong there too. We ate and drank with you in our streets. They were some of these that believed on Him for His miracles. Not good enough. You did not do what I taught. I never knew you. Where are you from? you worker of iniquity, out of my sight. And that's Luke 13's version of Matthew chapter 7. We want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today with all our hearts. We want to continue right. believing on Him all our lives, like we've sang already. And we want to figure out what Isaacs we need to be prepared to offer so that we show him the life of faith and the life of obedience that our father Abraham did. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen. Amen.